0: And welcome to the Out With Christmas special. As we are recording this podcast, 2018 is drawing to a close. And what a year it has been. Listeners in the UK will no doubt feel the news agenda has been somewhat dominated by Brexit, while those in the US might feel the domestic politics in the form of uh, Donald Trump uh, have been uh, omnipresent. while listeners in China may feel that the accomplishments, accomplishments rather, of President Xi have been the defining story of the year. But out with these headlines, there are many, many more stories that have been begging To be told. Now, we've tried to cover as many of these as we can on the podcast, but I and the team recognize that there are a lot more stories out there. So, what are the stories that are the most important? And what have we missed? How do we decide uh, what makes it into a news bulletin or makes it into this podcast? And who are we trying? to reach? Well, these are among the questions that my guests and I are going to try and answer today. And we have got three incredible journalists joining me for this special holiday edition. First of all, Kevin McKenna. Thanks for coming uh, into the kitchen. Kevin is a veteran journalist and commentator here in Scotland. Uh, He works uh, for the Herald, the Observer and the National uh, here in Scotland and of course, UK-wide. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Katrina Stewart is another well-kent face up here on the Scottish media scene. She's been a reporter and columnist with The Evening Times and The Herald for almost 10 years now, Uh going by your uh, Twitter bio there. So (laughs) thanks very much, Kat, for joining us also. Um, And Shingi Marariki is rather new to Scotland. Uh, Shingi um, is already blazing a trail, though, at the Sunday Times, where he joined as an apprentice and is now working on general reporting and investigations. Thank you so much for coming, Shengi, And indeed, welcome to all of you. This is this is great. It's, it's going to be somewhat of a technical challenge. <laughs> so many people uh, gathered with us today. Um, but it, it is good to see people who are working at the coalface, really, who are working at the coalface, who are sort of determining what the main stories are, who are sort of talking about the main stories. Um, but we don't often get to hear the journalist's perspective on what's in and what's not. So let's start with what we think the main stories of the year are. Kevin, let's start with you. What have been your main stories of 2018?
1: I think um, I've been in journalism for more than 30 years, and I think that 2018 <clears throat> has probably been uh, a sort of golden year for journalism, in the sense that the biggest stories started at the start of the year, at the end of the year they're still raging. The fires haven't gone out in them; they will probably rage for another couple of years. Um, so I'm thinking Brexit, of course, uh, the continuing car crash of Donald Trump's presidency, um, which bolted onto that has been the concomitant Mueller investigation. Um, which seems to throw up new ramifications every couple of days, including a, a quite a significant one earlier this week. Um, and then there's the Facebook Analytica new dimensions to the fake news um, <clears throat> agenda. And again, that's another one that took another twist this week with um, with Facebook being um, put in the spotlight as to what they were doing with people's private... Communications and Facebook to each other, so these these are three big stories that that have just kept on giving and will do for 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 a while. Right,
0: yeah. What would you think, Kat? I mean, would you agree with that, or is there anything else that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the theme for this year has been that people's sort of general dissatisfaction with the way things are has really kept bubbling and bubbling and is now boiling over. And so we're at a point now with Brexit where there is kind of fury. And with Donald Trump, there is fury. And I'm a local news reporter, so I I work for The Herald and I predominantly write news for The Evening Times. And so my perspective in Glasgow has been that that's been the case as well. So one of my biggest stories this year has been the equal pay issues with Glasgow City Council. And that's been really interesting to see because I've been covering that for years and years and there's been really no interest in it from the national media from the UK wide media and yet the bill for settling this equal pay claim is looking at being about half a million pounds so that's going to have huge ramifications for the country but all of a sudden this year the women were out and they were marching and they were making their voices heard and I think that's quite indicative of the sort of wider political scene and where we are at the moment is people coming out and being on the streets and being heard so yes i would agree with all of kevin's three suggestions there but for myself for a local level i think equal pay was really the big one for me this year
0: and it is interesting that equal pay story because i've heard it i've I've spoken to quite a few people about this story and the 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 overwhelming sense i get is people saying this is the biggest sort of stoppage of labour since the women uh, at Dagenham, at the Ford plant in Dagenham. This is also something which is, you know, I heard figures up in, sort of up in the billions, there's the millions of, you know, equal pay claims that need to be settled. It's something that could bankrupt the city of Glasgow uh, Council, which is no small municipality. Yeah. And yet, it, it doesn't seem to be getting any traction. And there are so many stories out there which just do not seem to be getting any traction. But then there are other ones which are getting, one could say, a bit a bit too much airplay. So lots to lots to unpack if we are to use the the, the lingo of the kids from today. Speaking of the kids of today. <laughs> Shingy, <laughs> um, you are you are our, our, our youth representative, if you like. I say that because uh, I don't think I'm allowed to be classed as a millennial anymore. Um, I think you're the closest to a millennial that we have. Um, so you're bringing a different perspective to this. Mm. Um,
3: I guess I, I do. What's, what's your views? In terms of the biggest stories in the year, I do agree with both Kevin and Katrina. I think there have been massive overarching stories, so Trump is always going to be one. Brexit is also always going to be one. But underneath those, there have been brilliant examples of journalism. So for me to have my first full year in a newsroom this year, in which, you know, so many of my contemporaries or so many people I look up to have broken amazing stories. Sean O'Neill's Oxfam story was a brilliant expose. I think it's been swept under the carpet, but that's an example of people using their privilege in countries in which, you know, devastating things have happened um, to, to, to do pretty evil, pretty shocking things. And for him to uncover that was excellent, um, some great stuff as well. The President's Club stuff by Financial Times, again, yes. that was a strong story. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting because you're almost, you're, there have been some extraordinary scoops, but you're battling against the two big beasts, which are Brexit and Trump. And it means that, you know, stories that should run and run and run Oh, sometimes missing traction another one that really struck me in particular being down in london for most of this year was the windrush stuff that was by amelia gentleman was amazing because again you had people who've been here for you know 40 50 years had grandchildren families and suddenly they're being sent back to their country that's you know and that's on theresa may's watch amber Rudd was very much a sacrificial lamb But, you know, very, very powerful and evocative stuff. We've forgotten about a lot of those things, which is, it's a shame, but it's also good for us as journalists to, you know, look at those as examples of great work. And for me, you know, I'm personally inspired and you hope, you know, as you go down the years. And you progress, you can do similar things.
0: It's it, it, it's quite striking. I mean, every time you guys are coming up in the story, I'm like going, "Oh God, yes! Oh yeah! Oh, you know, almost forgot about that." And I think it, it, it's right what you say. There is, you have got Brexit and you have got Trump, and it's like the normal rules don't apply anymore. It's it it, it just seems we're in this kind of new new reality where you know it's. I don't know, have we, is there more happening now or have the public lost the ability to be shocked? Because my big story of the year, which isn't, a, it's not a local story, it's, I guess it's local if you live in Western China. The big story for me was is the, um, the re-emergence of concentration camps where Muslims in China, um, ethnic Uyghurs are being rounded up into concentration camps. And since we recorded our first uh, podcast on this, uh, the Chinese government since uh, passed an amendment to a law that made this legal. So, um, for me, this is one of the massive stories of the year, and yet it is just impossible to make any kind of dent in in, in public. Um, I guess it's more like, do people care anymore? Well, I think
1: quite remember that with with social media, um, which brings a lot of opportunities to journalists. But also to uh, the general public, because it allows them to bypass us mm. if, if if they want. Um, but also means that they're, they're ripe for exploitation, as we've seen with the, um, some of the Analytica issues. <clears throat> but the the what's been happening in China is the same kind of thing was happening during the rendition of um, prisoners at Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. Um, with no trial, uh, Britain's participation in that, and Britain and America and its allies spent an awful lot of time, an awful lot of money, and an awful lot of expertise to ensure that the reality of these um, concentration camps and the way that they were being conducted by by um, countries that fancy themselves as the champions of democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and countries who have traditionally said that China is um, the enemy of democracy, um, China doesn't need to. Uh, um, Britain and America don't need to take any lessons in other countries and how they treat people. And, and 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 yes, I agree with you that the issues at stake, as you as you've just portrayed, <clears throat> haven't been given a, a massive hearing. But that that has uh, uh, social media and the way to exploit it has enabled governments to uh, distort it this way and that way, to diminish a story or to kind of breathe life into it, which I suppose makes our jobs, if you like, even more important because, you know, we have to continually question the sources that we have and and how our stories might be interpreted where we're getting them from.
0: Do you think we've, sorry to jump in Kat, do you think we've lost the trust of of the people we're supposed to be we're supposed to be serving. I mean, this is the 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 big thing that I've been sort of grappling for a while. I've noticed this for the last few years. I take upset, exception to be called being called a liar, and I found that increasingly since uh, you know for the last sort of four or five years, it's become an awful lot more commonplace uh, on social media. People. This was back in the day when people were using Facebook more uh, for expression than they were you know than i'm finding now it's uh, journalists are liars you can't trust what you read in the press you really can't trust this and so you know we're getting to this situation that i feel in my experience where you know we're you know we're, we're doing the work we're researching things properly we're sourcing things properly we're putting together incredible exposés that you know we've talked about but i mean are we reaching anyone
2: i think anger is a very natural response to that but I think we have to look at criticism constructively and try and work out how we're reaching our audiences and how we're communicating with our audiences. And that's really frustrating because the main feedback that we get as journalists is negative because people will become angry at things and that's their motivation for getting in touch. Very occasionally you get nice letters saying, thanks very much for that lovely story, but there are few and far between And so, you know, if you go below the line on articles, it's consistently negative. Twitter is horrendous sometimes, it's a snake bit. Facebook is really not very much better. Um, And I, I have certain areas I cover for my papers that I've always felt like I had really good relationships with the people in the communities I was working in. And recently that's gone awry, and that's really difficult to deal with when people who you know in person who you speak to constantly are saying, well, actually I don't trust you anymore. I think you're lying. I think you're manipulating the news. I think you've got an agenda. And my initial reaction was to be really offended at that because I haven't changed what I'm doing at all. Um, But really uh, there's a lot of self-reflection that I think needs to be done and we need to work out Mm. why it's gone wrong and how we're going to fix it. And how we deal with our readership, are they customers, are they consumers, are they partners, are they members of our organisations? And I think there's—I think trust has been damaged and I think the reasons for that are very, very complex and the way that we fix it is going to be really complex as well.
3: Mm. Mm, I agree, I think one of the things that pops up a lot is also Based on reporting of the last two or three years, is that we missed stuff. We didn't predict Trump being elected. We didn't predict Brexit. Issues like Grenfell could have been covered in a way that may have been from all reporters more humane. Same with the Manchester terror attacks. People were getting, you know, letters on their doorstep being like, "Can you talk to me?" There just seems to be in the kind of in the kind of we're very much closeted off. Our buildings are very homogenous, you know, very heteronormative, very. White, very middle class, and that is a big issue because it means you know reporters who may more na- may you know naturally fit in in certain areas or or may find it easier to talk to certain people. You don't have any of those. You know, I remember a very senior executive came to one of my training courses once. Obviously, you won't say names, and then I kind of just asked, and I didn't want to be that person. but I asked the question. I just said so you know, how would you sort out the ethnic imbalance in your newsroom? And then he just kind of stopped and said, oh, we had one guy and we we tried to send him somewhere. It's like... You need concerted efforts to make a newsroom more like the real world. That way we can get closer to those issues. Just like you, were, Katrina was saying about local reporting, you build up a rapport with that community. It's easier for me to build up a rapport with, you know, working class inner-city Londoners. That doesn't mean I can't report in Glasgow. It just means that I can help inform my newspaper's coverage, and I've tried to do that, and I will consistently do it. Um,
2: so. Yeah, and that is really difficult, and that's something... I'm constantly having conversations about because my newsroom, I mean, the Herald is very middle class, it's very white, it's predominantly male. The Evening Times is is more female, but again, I mean, I'm from a working class background and I would probably still class myself as working class, so that might be a bit of a delusion. Um, but it's it's again, it's educated people um who are just a homogenous bunch of people. Um And that's a kind of self-perpetuating problem, because if we don't have minorities in the newsroom, if we don't have a diverse newsroom, they're not going to be asking for change. And, you know, we have Women in Journalism Scotland, which is brilliant. We've just set that up. I'm on the committee. So I I should uh, say that I'm completely biased about how great we are. And we're trying to do work to uh, tackle gender balance. But who sets up a sort of equal group? Uh, to try and to widen diversity. Well,
0: what's the what's the solution to this? Because I mean, I'm I'm talking with three people who work in prints, and I am the you know I am I guess the representative from broadcast. I've worked in radio, I've worked in TV. I have to say, in all the newsrooms I have ever worked in, be they in China, uh, in France, in Scotland, in England, you know, there are. A fair, there's a fairly even gender split, it has to be said. Maybe the women aren't the ones in the top positions. I think that's where the, the, the sort of the gender disparity is. But there is a fairly even gender split. One thing I have noticed is that there is a, you know, there's a high concentration of middle class people, and not so many people who um, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps who yeah. came from that kind of backgrounds.
1: There's a. <clears throat> There's there's a fundamental problem that probably predates um, issues around um, uh, gender, uh, sexuality in in the UK press and the what we might call the establishment, and that is the whole um, realm of social mobility. In newspapers, um, journalists like you know we like to think that we probably have wield more influence than we actually do. Um,
0: Especially now.
1: We, we like to think that we're, we're quite a kind of, you know, down-to-earth um, listening body of people who are in touch with all the kind of the eddies and flows of, uh, of British social life. But actually, in terms of social mobility, um, the amount of, the disproportionate amount of journalists in the UK...
0: What Sorry, I'm eating a spicy snack, and it's a lot spicier than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, Kevin. Sorry, Sorry I'm, I'm over here C. getting a cup of tea and, <laughs> and a snack. You're
2: You are the, to the only person taking this word. seriously, You're listening to every word. Yeah, Tilly there's word. There's, a,
1: there's a disproportionate amount of um, privileged people, people who went to. The, the most expensive fee-paying schools who went to Oxford or Cambridge and maybe one or two other anointed universities. And this pattern happens across government, both in the government and in the opposition. Labour traditionally have just as many disproportionate number of the elite, the affluent elite, as, as the Conservatives. The BBC, I don't know what, it, what it's playing at because it, just, it seems that every senior executive, or many of them, who either join the BBC or who depart from the BBC have this umbilical cord with the Conservative Party. Um,
0: well, I don't know about that.
1: Well, there's—I I would say there's quite there's. If you look at some of the some key appointments over the last couple of years and some some key appointments in the Conservative Party who had had senior positions in the BBC, and I won't mention any names, but they're all out there. Um, I think there's at least an issue to be addressed. But it happens. It's the same in Scotland.
0: I think it's just the BBC, though. If you look at oh, the yeah. amount of journalists from Sky News, from the Daily that, Mail... That's from what I was going
1: to on to, because I'm talking about, you know, we've got the BBC. The next thing is also um, the biggest-selling newspapers in the UK, including, including ones in Scotland. Mm. The disproportionate number of people who, who occupy this top 5%. In Scotland, we have, we've got 12 First Division judges. At any given time, eight or nine of them went to fee-paying schools. Now, only 5% of the country went to one of these schools. Therefore, you could be one of the best lawyers, one of the most gifted, most just uh, and able lawyers, male or female in Scotland. But if you didn't go to the right type of school, you've got no chance of getting to the top of your profession in Scotland. And this is modern, diverse, enlightened... Bright Scotland.
0: So what's the solution then? Do we, I mean, do we need quotas? Do we need, I mean, how do, how do we tackle it? Because, you know, let's just, I think it's fair to say there's a bit of, the, the, you know, we're not as representative as society. Um, our, our newsrooms could be more diverse. How do you tackle that?
2: I mean, I think for me, as I said, I come from a working class Background, um, there was absolutely no encouragement given at school to be in a position where you're going to university or taking on a professional job. And I think mentorships are really important. There's already a very good scheme in Glasgow schools working with mentors, but Mm -hmm. I think if I had had a role model at that time, if I had had someone who was taking an interest in my career, and that is eventually what did happen, I got into journalism because someone took an interest in me. That's
1: such a good point. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And encouraged me, and I wouldn't have this job now, and there's still very much a sort of imposter syndrome sense. Sometimes, you know, if I'm doing something like this or I'm on the BBC my overwhelming sense is, what on earth am I doing here? Mm. I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. And it's a huge hurdle to try and get over and it doesn't really Ooh. go away. And I keep hitting this microphone because I nice. talk with my hand <laughs> quite a lot. Um, and... So, yeah, it's, I, I, I think it starts really young. I think it starts in schools, and and things have changed a lot. I am actually technically a millennial millennial hala, but I will forgive you for your mm-hmm. earlier comments. Uh, <laughs> millennials got post-1980 the isn't it?
0: Is Is
1: that, it's, it's pretty elastic.
2: Eighty two and onwards. All oh, right, so yeah. I, I am definitely not slightly, a millennial. Slightly pretty older. Pretty sure millennial. People who
1: have been born um, in the millennium and we're only eighteen. <laughs> so yeah,
3: but then even I wouldn't be. No, <laughs> I thought you were eighteen. <laughs>
2: That's either generation X like yeah. or Generation Y, but I could never remember which way around it is. Um yeah, so I do think things are changing in that regard. I think uh, there's a lot more acknowledgement of the importance of social mobility in schools, but we're probably you know, we're not going to see the benefits of that for some time yet. But yeah, I think it starts very young. Um and I mean, I'm quite radical. I would abolish private schools
3: well yeah,
2: I, I, would I <laughs> if I had my way. So that would uh, that would certainly help. But I don't think. Oh, I Do think I don't even...
3: Yeah, Eton College has done a lot of damage.
1: The, the, damage. the status of charter private schools is one of the biggest anomalies yeah. and um, mad things about modern UK and Scotland. There how, are
0: many mad things. How, how, things. How, so many mad things. things. How yeah. we have
1: this pattern of privilege. In Scotland, I'll talk about Scotland because I haven't lived in England, but I would say it's probably maybe more embedded down there. That these schools, which can charge thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds per term, somehow are able to get charitable status from the government, um, and 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 to what they will say, well, okay, we will we will do some nice social outreach things. We'll paint somebody's shed.
2: That's know, nuts, that, isn't it? And we'll, we'll
1: allow some of the hoi polloi in to use our playing fields and keep the hot water on when they use our showers, <laughs> you know, and then, yeah, thanks, let's have another 150 grand tax free
2: But, Kevin, you mentioned, um, you know, you can be extremely talented, you could be one of the best barristers of your generation, but you're not progressing in your career because you don't have that background. And obviously that's a problem, but I think the bigger problem is that people who are not as gifted and not as talented are progressing mm-hmm. and getting into these positions of responsibility.
3: Yeah, and there's an embedded self-confidence that they have because of the label of their university or their school, which is, you know, it's, it's stressful to see because someone who just hasn't had the access... Who may be as talented will never know and i think you know schemes like for example i got into um, news uk so the parent company of um, the sunday times through an access program called the news academy and when they started it they were like oh would you like to do this and i ended up doing like a talk and stuff and i didn't know any of the executives in the room i didn't know anything i literally just made a couple of jokes they liked the jokes and i got a card and i started interning then i grew into it and now you know i know all of these journalists but at the age of 18 I didn't know, you know, probably didn't know Catelyn Moran, for example, who's obviously a big name there, or one of those, you know, I, I didn't know anything, but I had, you know, gusto and I had what I hoped was a flair for writing, and then it just began to take shape because I was in the building, I met them, and the opportunity presented itself. Brilliant.
2: Yeah, exactly, and that, that's the difference, isn't it? I think for some kids, there's a definite career progression, and then for other kids, it's a kind of happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um and that, that, was my, that was my experience. I worked in a coffee shop and Shereen Nanjiani, who was then an STV newsreader, was a regular customer. And I used to chat to her and I was saying, you know, I'm doing this degree and I've got absolutely no idea what I'm going to do at the end of it. And she phoned up a few weeks later and said, why don't you come in and do some work experience? And that was me. I got a foot in the door and then uh, again the news editor of the Scottish Daily Mail was a regular customer, double tall semi-skinned latte mm-hmm. and uh, he invited me in for work experience and that was it. And and, and again it was about being in the building and learning and then, when then I was you, there.
1: Then once you're there you have to take the opportunity, exactly. which yeah. you did.
0: Yeah.
2: You grabbed that...
1: it and, and you obviously as well.
0: Yeah. Well it's, I mean it, it sounds like the hardest thing is getting a foot in the door. That's the, you know, and then after that, you do need to be able to graft, you do need to be able to... I mean, let's not kid ourselves. If you can't string a sentence together, if you don't know how to identify a story, you're not really going to get far in the world of of, of, of journalism. It's uh, There is a certain amount of talent that, that has to come along with it, but getting in that door is often the biggest so hurdle. One, one,
1: of the, one, of the, one of the most rewarding stories that I did this year was just a couple of months ago and it was about the medical school at Glasgow University which for the first time for a top UK medical school um, had 20% of its intake, its current intake of students uh, coming from the 20% of the most deprived areas in Scotland. That took 10 years, that was a project it took 10 years of tried and tested trial and error, rather, and a commitment and also an acknowledgement that people from disadvantaged areas, who perhaps didn't have private tutoring or, or who didn't have um, uh, a lot of the advantages, not just of private schools, but schools in very good areas. We're just as bright as anybody else, and when, to go back to your question about how what, what we do to to solve this is that if there's a will, if there's a commitment and a recognition that there are just as many smart people who are, if you like, um, marginalised, and if there's a will to try and reach them for the for the good of the country, the economy, how we how we educate our children, how we look after our our, our ill and um, deprived then we will do it. But at the moment, and this goes across all parties, there's never been a sufficient will to do this properly, I think. And and look, I include my own trade in this as well, as well as government, because it doesn't necessarily translate into immediate votes. You, know, you can't write a manifesto around it or put a leaflet through a door saying, you know, we're going to make it easier for your kids in five years' time to get to university, cause
2: And the reverse of that is that the people who have the power think, well, we're going to make it harder for our kids in five years' time because there's suddenly going to be this wealth of talent and competition for them. It's a hard sell going Mm. in both directions.
1: And this touches on what Kat was saying earlier, even about the the women's um, uh, march and strike in Glasgow. I mean, this is a universal avenue. I've always felt that if, if more women had been in the banking sector in 2008, we wouldn't have had the... the 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 banking collapse. I think think that if people, if there were more women, um, perhaps represented um, in the Brexit negotiations or in the uh, in, in a certain sector of the UK government, we wouldn't be at the current impasse. I mean, I, I, how do you test that? I don't. Know. I think
2: it's a difficult path to go down to sort of blanket say that women and men behave in different ways as a rule. Um, there are generalisations that can be made, but yes, I think you're absolutely right in saying that having more diversity in the decision-making process means that decisions yeah, will be yeah. made to be more equitable. And the women's, you know, the women's issue at Glasgow City Council is a really good example because. The unions were all men. The representatives in the council were predominantly men. Though that is now not the case, Anne-Marie O'Donnell is in charge and things aren't moving on as fast as the women would like them to. Um, but, yeah, you know, diversity, of course, is oh. is a really good thing. And we've gotten completely away from your original question, which I think was about trust
3: <laughs> yeah, in know, the media.
0: I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, and we'll come back to trust because you know, I think it's great to talk about diversity. I think the diversity issue is pertinent, I th- you know, I personally think that's where a solution will lie, but you know, can I change it overnight? You know, this is Kevin, you mentioned 10 years, five years, it may even be longer. Do you guys think we have 10 years?
3: I That's hope so. A, you, <laughs> for, my, for my sake, well, yes. yes hero, I, yeah. I literally That's kind of chose so. this. Exactly, I chose this career. Also, <laughs>
0: and when you
2: exactly. when you say "we," Holly, like, do you mean newspapers? Like I mean, no, newspapers, I mean, or do you mean the media? I mean
0: the media. Messaging? I mean the media on the whole. Sorry, I've got a snack in my mouth. Schengen, give us your but, point first, because you're yeah. optimistic, but then I'll, I'll yeah, kind of come back.
3: I'm that. optim. I mean, you have to be rational. Like last week when I was taken on a trip to like Eurocentral, where they print a lot of kind of the, the newspapers. So the Times, the Telegraph was there, Financial Times just up the road. And I was like, this is a novelty because this might not be here in this form in 10 years or 15 years or whatever it may be. But I think the gravitas that names like the Times, the Herald, Observer, Telegraph all have is important. And the talent that they attract will remain that way. Because for me to go home and say, you know, I work for the Sunday Times, I'm 22 years old. People go, oh my goodness, that's great. And that's a great honor. And it also gets people to talk. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, experienced heads there that can help tease out your talent rather than you sitting in a back room posting medium blogs. You learn about what mistakes you make on an assignment. You learn about, you know, how better to pose questions, how better to sculpt and mold a story. And I think, you know, for, for their sake, and I was going to Um, jumping with this just earlier a lot of organizations are now having these conversations whether it's bbc hiring like you know dedicated lgbt plus correspondents, or i look at friends who are on training schemes at like the telegraph and the mail and you turn around and you say this is better than you know than what the newsroom actually looks like there there is a degree of progress um and you know these brands have or some of them do some of them have enough financial heft to invest in different ways of telling stories and those are always important and they'll always be knocking around so i might be utopian but i think we'll be fine it will just be very different
0: it will be very the reason. The reason I say this, and, and to respond to your point, Kat. Obviously, we have three representatives of the newspaper industry, um, but even in TV, I'll you know I go to events where I'm sort of talking with young people or, you know, talking with women, encouraging them how to get into the industry. It's oh, uh, well, what do you do? I'm a newsreader with STV. Oh, right, okay, yeah, but I don't watch TV. And that's what I hear so often. I don't watch TV anymore. I don't read the paper. I don't, I read, read, the the don't read the paper. do read the paper. And so this is all fair and well. STV in Scotland is a name that carries, you know, a certain amount of clout in the same way that the BBC does, UK-wide and internationally, the Sunday Times, the Herald and Times, you know, and the Observer and the Guardian. These are all names which, I accept, you do carry an awful lot of Uh, an awful lot of heft you know an awful lot of you know there is still respect out there but you know how many copies of the of the paper do you shift how what are our viewership figures like and and that's the and they're only going in one direction and I know we're trying to combat this by trying to embrace social media and embrace if I hear the word embrace digital you know one more time I will hit my head off the desk I get we're trying to adapt but who's our audience who is our audience who are we talking to I was at a briefing recently for the new
2: nine show the new uh BBC nine o'clock news program and they were talking about diversity and about how everybody who watches the program will see themselves reflected back and it does sound very much like they're trying to be all things to all people and I don't I don't know if we can do that I think we need to have diversity of brands to try and reach different groups of people because, it, you know, people have different political leanings and they have different ideas that they trust. Um, and I, I think we're in a real kind of transition period at the moment. So My job's changed immeasurably. And I think that's similar to a lot of other newsrooms. I don't know what it's like um, for you, but I have to write my own headlines now. I have to source my own pictures and crop my own pictures. We don't really have sub-editors anymore, so I'm doing a lot of the work of a sub-editor. There's a huge push for digital, so I'm also repackaging my stories for digital, and that's very different from in print. So it's a case of separate headlines for the website, a picture gallery for the website, making videos. And... So our newsrooms have had huge cuts in headcount. There's far fewer people, but we're still having to produce not just the same amount of content, but more content because we've got web-specific and we've got paper-specific. And that's, that's how things are done at the moment, but I'm not sure that's a sustainable model. And I think we probably need to try and narrow down our focus rather than broadening it. And I think we're also still trying to work out what people want online. I mean, I can spend, you know, I went to Burma last year. I went to a Burmese refugee camp, and that was an incredible experience. And I wrote about it. And that to me, you know, that was a story that took a lot of time and it took a lot of effort, and it was well researched. And I, you know, I agonized over every element of it. And hardly anybody read it on the internet. And yet I wrote six lines about a new Krispy Kreme donut opening. And I think about 250,000 folk clicked on that, you know. So I keep using the word complex, but it is, it's just so complex trying to work out what people want, how we appeal to them. But there's
0: there's an answer to that because, again, if I take my own experience, I moved back to Scotland to launch a TV show that was uh, supposed to be answering the needs of what people wanted. The, The show that we started was bringing Scottish, UK, international news all into one programme. We were all super proud of it. We thought we did an amazing job. You know, it earned me an RCS nomination, fab. But no one watched it. So, you know, is there this distance between what we think people want and what people actually want? And I'm not saying that we should all, we should just be writing about Krispy Kreme donuts. But, you know, it, it feels to me like there's a massive disconnect between what we're doing and what people are reading and what they want. And I don't know how to get around that.
2: No, and there's something that, that bloggers have that people want mm. that they're not getting from the mainstream media. I hate the expression MSM. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> MM. <laughs> yeah. Mainstream is yeah. one word. Yeah. Um, and I I and I wonder how we we get over that hurdle because we do have checks and balances. As we were saying, we have trading schemes and we have conventions that have importance and we have experienced people that we learn from that bloggers don't and there's no accountability and there's no right of reply and any sort of misinformation can be spread, but these blogs are very well trusted. And that's a really interesting new phenomenon, and something that we need to really address. I think
1: we um, I think, uh, I think to a certain extent, newspapers and journalists um, killed the goose that laid the golden egg because for years, um, for years, we were accustomed to criticising, slaughtering, even destroying careers, destroying governments, shooting out judgments willy nilly. Sometimes with um, with very little knowledge, but it didn't matter. There were newspapers to fill, mm-hmm. pages to fill, and the only redress that we allowed the public was one page, and uh, called the letters page, and that was quite often edited by a you know a kind of an old chap uh, who was close to retirement, very very intelligent with his own you know bias and only those and such as those actually were allowed to get into the letters page so so for, for for generations we we did sit in judgment of people governments we we exposed their peccadillos while never having our own peccadillos you know held up to the light and and this over generations eroded people's trust and certainly didn't make us very popular in fact you know for years and you still get this you have to laugh when when you have um, somebody publishes the the list of the top twenty most distrusted um, or hated professions and 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 it's journalism journalism <laughs> were like you know the kind of bottom feeders you know we're mm-hmm. kind of like next to pond life yeah. when it comes to this. So 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 then then along comes social media, and and this resentment that it built for years in which. Which we never either never recognised or we ignored, and we certainly didn't allow allow them a platform in our papers. Well, when social media came and the bloggers took advantage of it, there was only one going to be one outcome. Mm. So some of these bloggers, you know, we're quite disdainful of because they use kind of unparliamentary language. They can, you know, they upset people. They can, they have kind of some dodgy agendas, but. But, again, for generations, we, we we haven't behaved very well either. You would say, well, who does the more damage? You know, somebody like a red-top tabloid who can destroy an individual's reputation, um, uh, you know, who, who will devote pages. And actually, not just red-tops. I mean, we're all guilty of it. Um, with some, you know, prurient, detailed sexual pe- peccadillos think that's what people want to read. How can we then sit in judgment of bloggers who kind of might use the odd, you know, disdainful or rather kind of um, unparl- unparliamentary language with, you uh, well, with some swear words and being a bit provocative?
0: Yes, and one thing I find, you know, I think you do get that online as well. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. You do get that online, um, but. You know, I think that there is also it 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 seems to me at times that we we're trying to 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 I don't know I mean, are are we you know we're recognizing that there is an issue recognizing this perhaps distance between ourselves and our readership, ourselves, and our viewership. I mean, are we going around it in the right way? We're trying to do more clickbaity kind of stuff where you know there are, Opinion pieces are are taking up an awful lot more of the paper than I think they used to. But back in you know when we had newspapers in my house in the you know the early eighties when I grew up, there were there weren't massive comment sections. Why why have we? I mean, this one of my the issues I have is you know massive chunk of the paper is opinion journalism. Why should I care what such and such thinks about the you know the the. You know, what's going on in the world today? I mean, are, are we responding to it? I, I, I don't know. I mean, if, I guess if it, we all had the answers to these questions, yeah. it would be.
2: Yeah, I think we're looking at it in a really short term way. You know, clickbait has worked for a while and it's produced the results for a while, but people are wise to it now. Well, what are the results? You know? I mean,
0: what's the results? What's
3: the... Look at Mail Online, it's the biggest news well apparently the most widely read news website in the world it's now it's it's a standalone publication in a lot of ways of its own editorial team yeah its own graduate trainee scheme
2: yeah exactly and i think that newspapers trying to emulate that that's part of the loss of trust as well a smaller part but definitely a part you know if I try and package like you know it's not my 40, I'll be completely honest but I'm learning and then you know it's a whole new skill set but people will just comment underneath and say this is clickbait I'm not reading any of your stuff ever again um so it's very short-termist way of doing things and people are not stupid they very quickly get wise
0: to our Are we treating our readers as fair idiots, our readers and our viewers? Are we talking down to our readers and our viewers?
1: <clears throat> I think um, I think an element, a significant element of the UK press always has. I, I have to laugh when I hear people talk about some kind of gold, far long ago, golden age of, of journalism in the UK and newspapers for. Everyone was honest. We were full of integrity. We gave all sides of the argument and it could be trusted. And we were all about being papers of record and telling people what the facts were. Nonsense.
2: It's always been an element of manipulation.
1: Newspapers have always been owned by very, very rich, in the UK, very, very rich white men with agenda, political agendas. And um, the only thing that their money can't buy immediately is influence so uh, you know okay you can buy influence up to a point but if you buy a newspaper you've you've got influence it's absolutely naive to think that these newspapers traditionally um, had ever been um, paragons of virtue and truth they never were sometimes they were but they all had their own agenda I mean even even the BBC and loads of people I know the BBC great journalists but it is the state-funded instrument of the state. The, the, the state that it has to scrutinise, and for the most part it does well, actually funds it, and it's aware of that.
0: We funded too.
1: But, you know, if you look at you know, when I was growing up, um, you know, the, the BBC's coverage of events in Northern Ireland was, was disgraceful. It was distorted. Um, the BBC's coverage of certain aspects of the Falklands crisis, of the banking crisis. But what what do you expect? You know every, to, to imagine that these organizations, this this massive organization with so many journalists and so many interests funded by the state can always always see that little thin line of, of truth and integrity at all times is probably un, uh, saddling unfair expectations in the BBC. Of course, it's going to, depending on the kind of bias of the, of the editor of the day or of the year, um, it, it will fall
0: in. I have to say that's not just specific to. And it's not just the BBC. It's, it's not any just news the BBC. Any but it's only one that's state-funded, though. Mm, I worked at a state-funded broadcaster. I've worked at two in the funded, UK. But, uh, well, you know, this is overseas, and I, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but I've seen, uh, you know, the same. Uh, the, I, I think we are all human. Oh. We're, we're not robots. We're never going to be completely impartial. I think it's um, there is there is an element to it, but regardless, if it's the BBC. Or if it, you know the BBC gets accused of being such and such things, STV gets accused of being very natty or very you know whatever. The the Sunday Times will be accused of being I don't know quite quite you know it's, it's a Murdoch paper and no? so you know it's
1: uh, you're an instrument of the establishment. I, you are. You, I am. I, I have always
0: wanted to be part of the establishment. of it, out, <laughs> now I am. It's no. I didn't get my jacket or my special badge, but there we are. I mean, but it's I guess my point is that there is a. We're, no one's ever going to be totally, uh, you know, down the line. And there, there, there is always... Is it just time to accept that, you know, it, are we putting enough emphasis... Are people expecting too much of their new services? And is, do they is, want
2: impartiality? Do people want impartiality? Because people I want to read what yeah. they agree with. Yeah. And will project... You know, one of my colleagues, David leesk is a... Very skilled, very intelligent talent. Yeah. yeah. And 50% of the people hate him for being a tool of the state, and 50% hate him for being SNP. So people project their own assumptions yeah. onto your writing. I'll write something that I think is very fair and very balanced Mm. and then the next day look at the comments and I'm being accused of this, I'm being accused of this. You know, there's a whole swathe of Rangers fans who hate me because they think that I'm a Celtic supporter and then there's a load of Celtic supporters who hate me because they think that I support the Orange Walk and that I'm a Rangers fan. Neither of these things are true but that's the perception that's built up and so people will read what they want to read, and I'm not sure there's that much of an appetite for impartiality.
0: Is that a sign of the times, or is it, or or has you know
3: has it always been like this? I mean, I think you're being hugely. Well, I mean, I've got way less in terms of the way in the way of experience, but I think you're being naive if you go into journalism and think it's always going to be straight down the line and straight. You know, even with the BBC and you know, impartial completely sticks to facts and doesn't use facts in, a, in an elastic or imaginative way. Um, I just think the onus is on you as a reporter um, or a person, first and foremost, a person of principle to do what you think is right and to stand up for yourself when you think something's wrong. And it takes time for you to develop that. Sometimes, you know, you might just creep around to the subs bench rather than tell my editor, but I, you try and make those calls. Um, I mean, you can't say the same for everyone, but that's just life.
0: But... I think yeah. I think you you you've you've hit on a, quite a, a good point there. And I think the perhaps when we we look at the challenge between you know professional journalists or instruments of the state, whichever way you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with professional journalists, there is always that you know we're not paid enough to you know to to to, to, to do this for anything other than conviction. You know it's uh, you know you're you go into it to 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 bear witness, to tell stories, to, to talk about things that are happening and to reach out to people. The reason that I've been, you know, tugging at my forelock is because I want to be able to, you know, to to, to talk to people and, and tell them what's going on. And my anxiety comes from the fact that I'm worried that we're not getting to people. But you you know, I don't think anyone around this table or anyone at the organizations that we work for you know anyone's getting into it to be deliberately misleading. Um, and 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 that's where the kind of the, the innate quality will come from. And I'm sort of hoping that oh, was that my buzzer? Um, I'm kind of hoping that someone will, you know, that will eventually filter through that these things could be cyclical. Like we'll go through a phase of, you know, we'll be trustworthy and then we're going to be untrustworthy, and it's just a, a, a case of of hitting those those troughs and so on. But it's um, it it strikes me whenever I see, you know, I noticed this after the Scottish independence referendum. There's all the crowd funders for. We're going to launch a new TV channel. We're going to launch a new this. You know, this is the real media. This is the real, you know, the 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 real news. What they're not telling you. And you know, and I I've watched a few of these things. And I remember watching one. uh you know, this is our news. This is the real news. Don't listen to what those liars, liar STV liar. You know, STV news tonight are doing. Um, or you know, you watch this thing. You just think you're fighting. Perceived bias with bias. Yep. yep. And you're not doing it very well. I was. I was. <laughs> it's I was like I was, we're having kind of a whip round for an for a I program. was really like, depressed
1: during the independence referendum at the, the demonstration outside of the BBC, and, and I gather there was another one attended by the usual suspects a few months ago. Oh, yes. Um,
0: <laughs> yes.
1: And uh, remember it well. And and they, these people will will um. Will use this phrase liar when when it may only be an error.
0: Yeah. You know, so mm. somebody
1: gets something wrong, he's a liar. Which then means that they're accusing this person of um deliberately um twisting something, doing a lot of hard work in the midst of it, putting it out. Um rather than just accepting it might have been a mistake. Yeah. Um, newspapers, are, you know, for all those stories that we're talking about, yeah, uh, 20, th- 2018 has been a golden year for journalism. The, the big tragedy is that in the last 100 years or so, um, journalism has probably been never been less e- well-equipped
0: yes. mm.
1: to convey the nuances, the the all of the... Um, the different directions, the different tributaries of news, and sort them out, sift them, evaluate them, analyse them. Because, I mean, the Herald and Times, I worked and the Herald as an executive 13, 14 years ago, there's probably fewer than half of the journalists currently at the Herald and Evening Times that there were when I was there. Mm. So, at a time when you get these massive, massive global. Life-changing stories such as Brexit, such as Trump, complicated themes running through them. When we need lots of journalists, um, lots of specialisms, we don't, because you know, we've made them redundant. Some well, we of that, some of that is because you know erode, there's been an erosion of trust in, in, in the news gathering um, outlets, which has led to smaller circulations. But some of it is also because other people, very bright people, are taking advantage of social media, putting out blogs, and we're currently in a kind of maybe a 10-year revolution. Because what what we have in common with journalists, authors from 200 years ago is the word. You know, there will always be a premium value on words. Mm -hmm. Um, At the moment, we're probably seeing the back end of, of newsprint. Carrying those words, and it will take another ten years to we see what is the popular, preferred, and trusted medium um, to carry those words in the next generation. So, while that's happening, there are all the there's a bit there's anarchy, and it's going to take us a while to kind of settle down and see what are the ones that can be trusted and what ones not. But as I said before, the ones that we thought we trusted, like you know the big national broadcasting outfits, the 250-year-old papers, were never really that trustworthy in the first place. And it was probably unfair to expect them ever to have been, given who was owning them and what their agendas were and, and, and what information they wanted to impart and, and what they wanted you to think of Britain's involvement in you know places thousands of miles away. Mm. I'll get off my soapbox. That's okay. (laughs) I'm still saying it online.
2: You know, there's so many different strands to it, though. You know, we're talking about a lack of trust. And is that as prevalent as we perceive it to be because we're only looking at social media and online comments? Is that really representative of all of our readers? It's probably not. But how do we find out what's representative? The internet has also meant that people are used to now getting the news for free, so our work literally has no value to people. Um, We have training and we learn from people who are older than us, and that's another problem with a lot of redundancies and a lot of the more experienced people in the newsrooms that you would learn from Mm. are gone now, Mm -hmm. and so younger folk, millennials like ourselves, (laughs) are having to find their own ways. Um, Completely lost my train of thought now. Um, I mean, there's loads of experimentation going on. Yeah, well, you, you were talking well. about
1: about trust. Trust is something that is conveyed and gained over years. And as you were saying, a lot of older journalists, more experienced staff journalists, are are leaving or taking redundancy packages. So millennials, such as you both, who a generation ago were able to cut your teeth. But be mentored. You know, it mm. might might be rough mentoring. You might, mm. have, but it was you know you can't do that. Or I wouldn't go to him. I'd go to her. Mm-hmm. Um, these things are all very invaluable. There's less of that now. I, that, There's that, much less point, of that
2: now. There's much less of that. And
1: you're kind of thrown in at the deep end, thrown yeah. to the wolves. Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm not sure the younger people that we have. Coming, no offence, but younger yeah. people that we have coming into the office are as receptive. To that I mean, there's things that you could get away with in a newsroom even 10 years ago that you wouldn't now. I mean, I've had some real bollockings, sort of people standing up and shouting, throwing things. You learn pretty fast.
0: Do you think so? Because, I mean, I guess I'm, one, I'm, I'm on the older end of the spectrum here. And um, when, you know, I see people, you know, people coming in, younger people coming into our newsroom and just expecting the moon on a stick. Mm.
3: Yeah, a lot of
2: people. Yeah, do. That's, that's what I'm saying they're not as receptive to this kind of knuckle down and work
0: hard. Rough work, kind work of... that phone for three hours, yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. Or even or... just the other thing I see is just a startling lack of ambition. It drives me lippy. Mm. You know, like you give someone it it's like, oh yeah, I find this on Twitter, that'll do. It's like, no, it won't. I need you on that phone for two hours. And yeah. if you're you
2: know, it's <laughs> And that's that's a big problem with this inter- internet-based journalism is you can just mm-hmm. find something on Twitter or Facebook and stick it on a news website yeah. and call it a story where there's no phone calls going in, there's no reaction, there's no balance, there's no content, there's no additional information. And it's very, very easy to be lazy And that doesn't help the overarching problem. I'll I'll stand up for
3: my generation a little in the sense that I think, yes, that's true. You can pull something off Twitter and yes, you can do a very quick rip. But it does mean that the talent that does pop up, you notice it Mm. way more just because there's that odd person Who went the extra mile? Absolutely stands out. Yeah, exactly. Unique insights from unique backgrounds, and you know the the most interesting thing for me was moving into being a reporter. From being, I interned on like four desks before I got a job, and I was always in the newsroom. And then seeing, you know, what kind of people come in every two weeks, and reporters don't give them that much time a day. If you've been a reporter for fifteen years, it's just the work he sits next to you. But for me, I'm kind of like they're in and around my age. How do they conduct themselves? Where do they pick the stories up? And you know. The the power of of everything we're talking about in the sense that oh there's lots of blogs and there's lots of places where it's it's just it's a quick turnaround and there isn't much depth. It means that you value great journalists and great journalism way more. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't realise that a story, for example, that press story that went around about the girl who died. When um, when she had a sandwich, was, which wasn't appropriately labelled, I sit next to the reporter John Ongo Thomas in London, who you know, who broke that story, and it was just clever forward planning. He knew when the inquest was. He had spoken to the family. He had done all of that, and then everyone else followed. You you know, there, and even if people didn't attribute it to him, I know the BBC didn't, and that was a bit, a bit problematic. But you know, um, he did that. And a lot of the, the the issues that we have in public debate and a lot of the the topics we talk about, whether it's big or small things, a journalist did do that. And you just hope that people do turn around one day and say, actually, who is the original source for that? Where was it? And it's only, you know, well, I'd, it's, we are in a select handful of people who can do that.
1: We, we've, um, in the last year or so, we've had a couple of stories which throw into relief the challenges that some journalists face. Um, when when covering these, and one of them is an area that the cat um, has covered in Govan Hill. Um and the, the, you know quite a lot of journalists have you know come in filled their boots about the problems and social problems in Govan Hill and the Roma. Quite a lot of them. Yeah,
0: just just for just for um, context, Govan Hill is a is a. Our a very deprived area of Glasgow. It has reputations for being
1: it's got this. it's a very small area of Glasgow which has got um had a some disadvantages reputation. and challenges. <laughs> so Kat has challenged quite a lot of that and specifically has worked with the Roma community or worked to give them a voice. And frankly neither she or or me or, or people at like Carol Cadwallader at the um the Observer, whom I'll, I'll talk about in a second, are paid enough mm. to take the amount of bu- abuse and threats, and, and this is actually something that women get more than blokes, um, uh, for uncovering something that makes some people feel uncomfortable. Um, so Kat's had it for, for, for trying to give this um, to this uh, poor community a voice, and to actually try and address some of the fiction that has grown up around it, and it's gone beyond mere criticism. You know, it's 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 horrible misogynistic abuse. Carol Cadwallader of the Observer has done the same over the last year and a half with regard to the quality of information and and uh, you know the links between Facebook, Russian dark money certain um, data analysis firms without mentioning when in particular because I believe there are some legal issues going on. Um, and, and for that, you know, she's, she's been lauded by the industry but she has been, she's been subjected to
0: absolute,
1: absolute abuse, abuse and, and threat. And, you know, threat to life um, from, quite frankly, from people, Sorry. some people who ought to know better. And that makes it more authentic.
2: <laughs> Just pouring a cup of tea.
1: Um, so, so there's these issues as well. You know, there are big global issues. There's, there's, when you're talking about trust, you know, you could say, like right, the two biggest stories, last year or so, Brexit. Last two years, Brexit and Donald Trump. Ongoing Donald Trump. Mm. And you could say with a certain amount of conviction... That Trump got to the White House and we got Brexit because a certain amount of the people in America and, and Britain had the wool pulled over their eyes, were basically sold lies. Now I know I know it's not that. I mean, this is my highly subjective opinion. Um, and when when these big things happen, these big important things happen by big, important, powerful, moneyed people, then you know the erosion of the trust starts at the very top. And then people begin to question the sources of information, which is ourselves, quite rightly.
0: Absolutely. I think, I mean, Brexit's one of these things that we haven't actually touched on in this podcast, mainly because... (laughs) 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 But it's one of these things, like the last... I mean, we're recording this, you know, sort of the middle of... middle towards the end of December 2018. And the last couple of weeks in British politics have been astonishing i've got a sore neck from changing direction so many times it's is it, and the, the other difficulty with these stories is that it, they're very complex they're incredibly complex how do you make this you know how do you make this digest people don't know what brexit is like i'm sorry they don't i don't care how many people say it, i don't know what it is that, I don't know what That
1: includes people in Parliament.
3: Thank okay. that. <laughs> oh, the majority
0: of them understand it. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we've got a Secretary of State for Northern Ireland who doesn't realise that people vote along sectarian lines. We've got, we have several Cabinet Ministers who don't seem to think that, you know, no deal means there's no transition period. Got, oh, it's a transition period with no deal. No, there's not. Um, There's there's some absolute howlers coming out and it's the the kind of things that normally would bring down governments, but yet we seem to be in very different times. And I I guess my point is this. I mean, these kind of stories, are we able to ever tell them effectively? Effectively, I mean, are we? I mean, I don't have the bandwidth to process it. I have
3: massive problems with the way that Brexit has been covered. And, you know, there are some great political journalists who are having their moment, um, but... I think there is too much assumed knowledge, way too much in the way that we cover these things the every person, the every man, the layman, and even, you know, ourselves to some extent, if you're not a political specialist, don't know some of the fundamental issues surrounding it, you know, backstops and no deals and, you know, periods and, and, you know, transition periods. But no one ever talks about the basics. They always just assume, you know, a lot of the political journalism in this country seems to be posh people gossip, which is good if you want a bit of salacious talking about what happened in Cabinet at 7 o'clock on on Wednesday evening or whatever else, you know. But... It, you're doing people a disservice. Whether people had the wool over their eyes or not is a completely separate debate. But one thing I do know is there's not enough, not enough, you know, sustained analysis that goes beyond what is happening in Parliament enough. And, you know, that's why for me, I just, I don't know if I'd ever want to be a political journalist because yeah. the way it's done right now is quite... It is as gossip. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a, interesting.
0: It's a, it's a gossip column by, mm-hmm. you know, people in Penn no, Street the It's
1: par- parliamentary lobby.
0: But I was going to say, but is this just Brexit? I mean, I have, this is another one of my, my hit list of things that I've, you know, sort of throw my darts at, you know, is, you know, opinion writing, which I will consume. Now, don't <laughs> get me wrong, I'll read those pages of the paper. You're not helping
2: with my imposter syndrome here,
0: Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> come on, now, come on now. But with political writing as well, I mean, it's, uh, with, with political writing, has there ever been anything other than a gossip column?
1: it's are we covering a politics? specialist knowledge that is that a, a very anointed very tiny anointed few are given access to and it's a club mm. and for the most part it's been a white male club and it's been very very exclusive there's still a lot of that about but i, I find with brexit there's there's a handful of, of trusted commentators, one of which is Ian McWhirter, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, he's a fellow columnist and a Herald, but he wrote a piece the other day um, analysing um, some of the possible and probable outcomes that could happen over the next week or so and analysing Labour's tactics. And it was one of the most clear-minded Pieces with regard to what has happened in the last two weeks in Brexit in the UK there's three or four others like that but quite often I've found that Brexit is an excuse for a lot of male members of this gossip club to take refuge in they don't need to be creative Um there's not much new you can write about it nobody really knows how it's going to end
0: nobody knows what's going on so
1: you can take refuge and write about it for 11, 1200 words and and say what you like and just put the same buzz phrases in Mm. backstop free movement customs union Norway Norway plus access to trade and just kind of make sure your column has all in fact you could probably find out you know you know a program an online program just put it into your computer to make sure at the end of that 1100 words you have got 10 a lexicon of 10 of these phrases fine Breaks yep it bingo. they're all there bingo. fine I can send <laughs> <Like> it
0: <that.
1: laughs> and then the editor who who handles it looks you know he's probably handled hundreds of these and looks written things yep it's all there legally it's fine like get it in yeah
0: The best bit of, uh, sorry to cut you off, Kat, the best bit of Brexit reporting I have ever seen, and I maintain this, it's a children's television programme on RTE, and they got the um, political editor to come in and basically stand beside a plasma screen and explain in children's TV language what a Brexit is. What a backstop is, what a border is, what border controls are. And I was sitting there for I think three minutes, 31 seconds, absolutely enraptured, because I was like, this is, I have learned more from this than I have from two years. Mm, did watching. you tell me the link for that? <laughs> yeah, that was, yes, but, but, but that's the, that that was a public service. And I was like, you know, and we can draw our own conclusions, the fact that it was an Irish broadcaster doing this and not one, you know, not one here. But it was it was absolutely incredible. And I find that a lot more useful, a lot more illuminating than any of the, the the gossipy the gossip. And another reason this is on the in the forefront of my mind is because I've just been working on a an explainer series explaining what these terms mean and my head's ready to explode but it's um it's hard
2: yeah and you don't want to patronize people but you also don't want to as you say assume knowledge because people hear all these words they don't understand them and they think well this is not for me and they just switch off and they don't engage with the debate and that's not even just a brexit thing It's a left-wing thing, it's a trans-right slash feminism thing. We, the media, develop all these buzzwords and catchphrases and build these new lexicons that we assume that people understand because we understand them. But if you're not exposed to them constantly, then it's a complete and utter turn-off. And I think that you know the BBC has been quite good for publishing a few explainers on the website. And that is something that we should be doing. I mean, obviously, for print, you've got a certain word count that you can't go over, and so if you can just say backstop rather than going into explaining how that affects the Irish border and et cetera, you you don't have the space to do it. But, yeah, I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that online, but then that comes down to resources, and so it's all of these different things that we've been talking about just feeding back in again.
3: And I guess our readers are also, you know, for example, if it's the Sunday Times... Your readers are of a certain ilk, whether it's class or background or they're more politically inclined, we assume. So we don't have to do that. But what about beyond that? And isn't there a public interest and a public duty as a journalist?
0: Yeah. Mm. I'm very aware of the time pressing on. Um I, I, I do I have a plumber coming round soon. Uh, and <laughs> you've got to get back to work. Indeed. Um let's just let's round it. None of us is a crystal ball, otherwise we'd be making a fortune writing Brexit articles. Um, but just as we look ahead to 2019, what are gonna be the, the, the defining issues and stories that we are covering, that we should be covering and just in general, the general direction of where we're going to go as a, I guess, as an industry. Uh, Kevin, let's you. Be...
1: Um, I think that uh, 2019 is going to become very interesting in America for the, the US presidency as the, um, the Mueller net begins to close in on the Trump family as has begun to happen this week that's the week before Christmas Um, because there is talk of Trump maybe having to fall on his sword um, uh, uh, sometime soon so that he may be able to escape close scrutiny what that may or may not do for America and its relations with the rest of the world is up for grabs but it will be quite substantial I think also Brexit. By this time next year, um, we'll it will have bedded in, and we will know the consequences or otherwise. And if the consequences are as bad as people like me and others have been saying, then you have a massive implications for Scottish independence, among other things. Ah yes. Um, in fact, isn't it great that we've gone a whole hour with? without discussing Scottish <laughs> independence I <laughs> think that's, that's, that's a
0: record a record
1: you
3: know
1: there, you still can't get away with those from those two stories but there are other things like you know the ongoing cover-ups by the Catholic Church in terms of child sex abuse um, you know the, the two years after the, the the kind of start of the Me Too movement has it lost a bit of momentum or have kind of dark forces managed to somehow quietly take it away from the front of the agenda which is something that may uh, I'd be wanting to discuss at some point next year as well because it's curious how it Let's do
0: a meaty a party, let's do it
1: and then its I don't know, maybe I've been paranoid but... so Who then... knows,
0: it's difficult to predict anything in this day and age isn't it but um, yeah, a meaty party I'd be interested in pursuing that a bit uh, Kat, what are your thoughts for the year ahead? I
2: think Scottish independence is going to be really at the fore uh, for us as we find out what happens with Brexit. If we find out what happens with Brexit, perhaps this time next year we will be back in your kitchen, still confused. I how we're all clueless, still working about
1: it. <laughs> well, Jacob Rees-Mogg thinks that you know it might, it might take fifty years for it to settle down. Yeah, which is okay for him because he's a multimillionaire.
2: I he's think he's... a vampiric, so he's got time, doesn't he? He's the <laughs> <really> undead.
1: <laughs>
0: Allegedly. Allegedly,
1: please. It's <laughs> that like we could test. We enough
0: to test we? <laughs> We'll have to wait a, <laughs> a minute. <laughs> oh,
2: I went straight for a stake to the heart. You can go for a mirror. That doesn't make me look very really good, does it? Gosh. Um, I think the Scottish media this year really kind of failed to adequately cover the gender recognition act in scotland i think we were not brave enough about it and by the time we started talking about it it was too late the consultation was closed and it was really only when the london media started talking about it that we jumped on the bandwagon so i think there's a real lesson to be learned from that for next year we're not brave
0: enough
2: no no i think well I i think female writers were worried about the impact of anything that they might see And I think having a lot of men in charge of newspapers didn't help because I think a lot of men just see it as something that doesn't affect them and there wasn't really any kind of interest in it. And when it is a minority group like trans issues, that can be quite difficult to sell to an editor because they want topics that are going to appeal to a lot of people. Um, and as I say, once we started writing the dreaded opinion pieces about it. This is <laughs> just me. This is just me. This and, yeah. you know, and once we started looking at it, it was really only because the the London media were doing it. And I don't think there was much of a recognition that by that point the consultation in Scotland had finished, it was too late, and we were only just starting to have those conversations. So I think they are going to very much be at the fore in 2019 as they should be, Scottish independence and I think community reporting, that's perhaps not what will happen, but what should happen, we really, really need to be connecting with communities and covering all the stories that we've missed. I mean, if you, sorry, I'm totally going on now, but if you look at, you know, a week ago... We were so transfixed with Brexit, there were two massive stories that happened in the one day. There was child suicide mentioned at Prime Minister's questions and a woman got lost and bled to death Gosh, in a hospital. Yes, that was an awful story. Those mm. two would otherwise have been agenda setting stories and we're so bothered with the hullabaloo of Brexit that we miss them. So yeah, I, I think more than my predictions for next year is more lessons that can be learned and things that we should be taking on board for next year.
0: Quite, quite. And I agree with you, I have to say. I'm not very, it's not often I'll put my opinions out there because as a TV broadcaster, you kind of get, you know, sort of hammered with that kind of thing. But um, I, I agree that we are very, our bandwidth is taken up with these big stories like Brexit with Trump and the the, the local things which are arguably affecting people more or touching people more and the stories that people are close to but i don't think it's that we're deliberately not covering them i just don't think we have the the end we do not have the bandwidth you know it's um we don't have the you know that's the work of four men and there's only one of me you know it's uh it, it's hard and that's a constant struggle i think that 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 we all have Shenqi, let's. What are your what are your lottery numbers that we should be
3: that should be too dissimilar to what's been across the table? I think what I'm hoping for in the way of Brexit coverage is maybe now that it's well, it's it's rumbled on a bit, is that people start looking at the the, the debris that's been left in 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 its wake. For example, you know, whole government departments have had two or, in some cases, you know, two or three ministers in charge of them. Education is one that springs to mind straight away. You know, the, the people's lives are being impacted. Young people are going to be impacted by Brexit. They haven't had a, a, a stable education secretary for a while now. Joe Johnson left, Sam Gaima left in the same year, a few months apart. You know, it's 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 doing real damage. And I think that would be hopefully picked up on when people actually go, hold on. But this department has had now like three, three different people in charge. Look at Universal Credit because Amber Rudd's back in and you just kind of on welfare and pensions and you just kind of you 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 do hope that there will be the odd reporter that actually sifts beyond the kind of you know buzzwords and the politics to actually do some of the real real life real life stories and you know looks at its implications and i think some people will because they realize hang on i'm getting a bit bored of hanging around the lobby i'm getting a bit bored of just you know reading the 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 upper analysis online and i'm going to do some stuff on actual you know people's real life scenarios um so that's that's i guess what i hope for and i'm i'm optimistically predicting it too
0: excellent well then i am optimistic as well we are going to have to draw this to a close because kat your editor is going to give me a nasty phone call in a second <laughs> so um let, let's draw this to a close i want to thank all of you for for sharing your opinions um and, and for having this discussion thank you to to kevin to to Kat and to Shingy for the discussion. And also, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the other incredible contributors uh, to the Outwith podcast. And you've really made us, I think, a a, a real standout addition to the podcasting community. I want to name check a few of you now. Thank you, Josh Chin from The Wall Street Journal for bringing uh, his insights into the Uyghurs and the state-sanctioned oppression they face from China into into a wider domain. Thanks also to Stephen Carroll from France 24 for explaining the Greek financial crisis and its repercussions, its ongoing repercussions on the European project. Thank you to Kit Gillette from the New York Times for shining a light on the ongoing fight against corruption the efforts to undermine that fight and the involvement of Donald Trump's lawyer. That's episode three, if anyone wants to check that one out. Uh, Thanks, Chris Edwards, for talking us through the political turmoil in Australia and outlining the parallels we see in many democracies and also from distracting us from the political turmoil uh, here in the UK. Um, Thank you, Matt Schrader, for explaining China's Belt and roads initiative and explaining why Beijing is on the road to global trade domination. We've also explored the fate of Nazanin Zagai-Ratcliffe and other dual Iranian nationals who are caught in the middle of torturous relations between Iran and the West. And that's all down to British Iranian journalist Sanam Shantier, who was speaking with us earlier this year. We've shone a light on the little known story of nuclear waste from Scotland heading to sacred Aboriginal lands, that's with James McEnany. The Scotsman journalist Martin McLaughlin has talked us through the unusual business dealings of one Donald J. Trump right here in Scotland. And The Guardian columnist Eve Livingston has explained what the Me Too movement actually means and what, if anything, has changed. I think we are going to do a Me Too part two when we uh, examine the fallout of that in a bit more detail. These are just some of the issues that we have tackled on the podcast and there are many, many more out there waiting to be told. Now we're going to take a break over the festive periods and when we relaunch it will hopefully be uh, with an exciting new partnership. In the meantime, please have a listen back to our previous episodes and do get in touch with us. Join the conversation by tagging at Outworth Podcast on social media and let us know what you think. Subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Leave us a rating, because I love stars. And um, all that's left for me to do is to say thank you so much for all your support. Thank you to our thousands of subscribers thus far. Um, It has really been our pleasure sharing these stories with you. And we're looking forward to doing more in the year ahead. All the best for 2018, all that remains of it. And we wish you all a very successful Happy and healthy 2019. Bye-bye.